Employment is the best leading indicator that a vertical might be working. A lot of companies, really sophisticated, cutting-edge companies, just haven't figured this stuff out. I think it's because the tools suck. What we're finding is that a lot of people have the brain power and don't have the technology. So you have to have both. When you picture 10 years into the future, what do you imagine? I think making any decision without maximal information is just stupid, and we shouldn't be doing that ever. You can't disarm the data overlords, you can just arm everyone else. Welcome to Data Science Storytime, a show about data, science, stories, and time. I'm Kevin, storyteller at Keen.io. And I'm Kyle, co-founder and CEO at Keen.io. Data Science Storytime is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest or have a story you'd like to share, you can reach us on Twitter at DSStoryTime or join us on Slack at slack.keen.io. Okay, we're back. And we're back. And we're back. <laughs> I forget how we start these things. Well, we don't have, there's no, there's no, there's no we starting these things yet. I don't think we have a cadence or even know what the thing is. I like We do got to name it and all that. I, I like that we can. <laughs> Let's not go there though. No, I know. We can, we <laughs> can get it. an hour in the house. I know, I know. We will, we already did. It's our, it's our best episode. <laughs> it's our best episode is coming up with a name that we might now do, like abandon. I do like how now we can just get a running start and then whenever it is the right time to start, we'll start. But I know that you just got back from New York, uh, where you were making an announcement with IBM about a partnership for Keen with the Watson project. Yep. And so it got me thinking about all the things in your mind about the future, where you see the future of Keen, where you see the future of analytics, why it's exciting. And since uh, we weren't there in the room with you then, I'm just curious, when you picture 10 years into the future, what do you imagine? What do you imagine for the company? What do you imagine for the landscape of analytics? First, we have to, to answer the question, we have to dig a little bit, I think, into what analytics, what we mean by that. Even you asking the question to me, even as colleagues for years, we may mean different things. That's great. Okay, let's dig. To me, there's this big, imagine sort of a big Venn diagram. There's a huge circle on the outside called science, right? This is like the scientific method. This is a rigorous intellectual practice for groups of people to find the truth. Or at least, I guess, systematically find things that aren't true. <laughs> That's a little pedantic. And within that, there's a whole bunch of stuff like how do you form hypotheses? It's pretty intuitive, pretty human. There's some interesting work in AI to try to get machines to get better at that, but I'm not betting on that stuff hitting in 10 years. I think human insight and intuition is going to be pretty important for forming hypotheses and designing experiments. But how to run those experiments and collect the data as a result of those experiments and how to evaluate whether your hypothesis is true or false is actually the hard part for a lot of companies for a lot of like universities you'll like if you go to elite university science labs today you'll see people writing on notebooks you'll see people filling out old spreadsheet software like not not even excel and that stuff they develop mastery of this weird archaic software cuz the kinds of computers they have and they store that stuff on that machine they run their analysis they write their paper and the data is gone it's usually small data it's usually not super well structured and it usually disappears <laughs> so that's the state of science, like the actual science. I mean, like the, you know, I'm going to say conservatively, tens of billions or maybe hundreds of billions of dollars enterprise, the human pursuit of knowledge. That's the state of how it's done today. Small, disconnected, disposable. Small, data. disconnected, disposable. And we keep the unstructured, like paper that somebody writes. You can sometimes get to the underlying data. Things are getting, the practices are getting better. It's been 10 years since I was in college when I saw a lot of this stuff up close. But suffice to say, I think it's still like that. And I think in the business world, usually the business world's ahead on tools. Sometimes behind on on vision compared to academia. In the business world, the tools are not that different. So, anyway, that's that's science, science like the scientific method. Okay. The data science piece, 
I talked about something that's kind of archaic and outdated. Let's talk about something that's really at the cutting edge. What kind of company do you think is on the cutting edge right now? What kind of company do I think? Yeah, what, on the yeah, what are edge? some companies that are probably really good at this stuff? I would think Google would be pretty good at that. Yeah, stuff. Google. Yeah, Google's pretty damn good at this stuff. Facebook's pretty good at this stuff. LinkedIn, Amazon. You know, since LinkedIn's part of Microsoft, we're talking about four of the Fortune top six companies, <laughs> and they're really good at this stuff. And the way they do this stuff is, all the data is collected at very large scale. It's never thrown away. It's super connectable, at least within their enterprise. People can get to the data. And it's very, very large. So it's the opposite of all the things we just described. So the, the reason that I'm doing what I'm doing, and the reason one of the reasons we exist as a company is what about all the companies that are in the Fortune Six? <laughs> right? And what about all the Wait, non- we're not in the Fortune Six? We're not in the Fortune Six, certainly. And none of our customers are yet. So what about everyone else, right? So to make it more concrete, like some of the things that these companies are really good at, you know, when Facebook rolls out a new feature, they roll it out to a tiny, tiny sample of people, small enough that they can if the feature isn't, doesn't perform well, they can destroy it, and nobody ever knows it existed. And it's small enough a sample that doesn't even get in the press. And they do this kind of stuff quietly and secretly all the time. They collect everything about what you do on their product. Like they don't need focus groups. Focus groups are a summary of user activity. They actually just have all the user activity. <laughs> they don't need to focus the data. They can get all of it. And they do this stuff constantly and in real time. And everything, every feature that they launch has hypotheses around it, and it, ha- it has success criteria. So everything they do is scientific. As a you know product design company, largely that's what they do. Obviously, on the ad side, you know they're very scientific about that stuff too. So the interesting thing to me is that a lot of companies, really sophisticated, cutting edge companies, just haven't figured this stuff out. And I think I think it's because the tools suck. So in ten years, I'd like to see a world where maybe there are twenty thousand companies whose capacity in ten years is where Facebook is today. Well, if the tools suck, why, why does why does Google and Facebook have so much better tools? Uh, they build them. And they have very smart people. One of their biggest advantages is that they're new companies, so they're not tied to stuff that they bought in 1995 that didn't exist in 1995. And one of the reasons Facebook is significantly better at this than Google is that Facebook didn't exist <laughs> when Google built a bunch of this stuff. So the newness alone gives them an advantage. If you're looking at a solution set or a tool set as a business, you have to buy, you have to build it, or you have to partner with somebody that has it. Buying and partnering weren't options, so they built. Every company in their generation built. These companies just built really well, and I think it's one of the reasons they're still around. Okay, so why doesn't every? Why can't every company just do that? Well, to build it, you have to have the talent. You have to be able to find data scientists, data engineers who actually know how to do this stuff, and those are currently the two hardest things to hire uh, in the entire tech industry. So, the solution of building out a team of the kinds of people that built these systems at those companies will not work because you can't actually find that those people. So if I imagine that 10 years from now there are 20,000 companies who have the data science capacity that Facebook and Google have in 2016 they have now. I'm not saying that those 20,000 companies will have whatever face the next Facebook has then. But for them to get there those aren't they're not going to be 20,000 companies that go out and hire a bunch of badass data engineers to build this stuff because there's just not enough talent in the market. So the main thing I think about is like how do you take people who are in the rest of the market they're stuck way in the past and how do you bring them into like not as far in the past? And then how do you bring them into the present? Eventually, if you can bring them into the present, if you can get yourself into a situation where a retail chain, a Safeway, has the kind of data science capacity of a Facebook, then maybe those businesses will continue to exist in 20 years. They won't be crushed. So just to be clear, where does Keen fit into this landscape now? Before we get into the future of what we're going to be doing, how do we fit in what is our role right now? Well, right now we help about 3,000 of those companies, closer to 4,000. Having some of the same kinds of tooling. How? I'd... You know, they can 
record history, run hypothesis testing and experiments across that historical data, and they can represent it wherever they want to represent it. I think what we do makes it so that one developer can do what used to take a team of data engineers and data scientists. Because okay. one developer using an API, you know, one developer can do all of the telephony for the Uber ecosystem because they use Twilio's API. Okay. One developer can do what the data team used to do. I think there are enough developers in the world to make that work. Obviously, I think that's part of our thesis. I mean, we'll see if it's true. One of the things that was really illuminating to me was at our conference when Jeff Norris from NASA came and gave that talk. Yep, and I remember that. Because, I mean, talk about a group that's on the cutting edge of science. I mean, it's NASA, <laughs> right? Like, they're pretty, they're pretty badass. I'm sure lots of companies have explored outer space and gone to the moon. Yeah, and in, that, in, in their universe, you know, he, he, he used our platform in, in, on a Sunday. To find a bug that was over a decade old inside of the software that's on every robot that they launch, every crawler, every rover, right? Like that they hadn't found otherwise. that they hadn't found for those ten years, right? And like this, this wasn't even new data. This wasn't a live, real-time data stream. This wasn't any of that kind of whizbang. You know, it's an IoT device connected to the cloud every second of every day kind of stuff. This was like the data set. I think was from two thousand six that he used to find this problem. But just by loading it into our platform and playing around with it for like an afternoon on a weekend. He found that thing. Like that's this is the head of software, the JPL. <laughs> like this is this, and he's a very smart guy. Probably the smartest person I've ever met. A very nice guy too. A great guy. Awesome speaker. You should have him on this podcast. If he can do that at NASA with his huge rocket brain, just by having slightly better tools, or maybe significantly better tools. I'll, I won't be humbled. Significantly better tools. <laughs> it just tells me that there's a lot of opportunity for everyone, basically, that has scientific questions and. To me, it doesn't matter what you do. You probably ought to have scientific questions about it. That's kind of my my bias. So it sounds like what you're saying is, in the present moment, we're at an inflection point where there are a small handful of organizations that are companies, not even NASA or universities, that have the strongest power for computing and for running this kind of analysis. And the playing field, we're starting to see that get leveled with the ability for an individual developer to get the what would normally take a team. Yeah, I mean, there's the computing power component to do this stuff. So I always think there's it's like a two part system, right? You've got to have the brain power in the company to ask the right questions. I don't know exactly how to help companies with that overall. So maybe because some consulting firms can help with that. In general, I think the market's going to decide. In general, the market's going to decide companies with more brain power should win. So you've got to have the brain power to ask the right questions, and then you've got to actually have the technology to answer those questions. And I think what we're finding is that a lot of people have the brain power and don't have the technology. So I like that, I like that example because, like I said, Jeff Norris is like the smartest guy in the world, <laughs> and it's NASA. Nobody would criticize NASA for brain power. They have enormous brain power, but they don't have the technology set. So you have to have both. But you don't necessarily anymore have to have size you don't have to be the biggest elephant in the room in order to be able to participate in this kind of right you know. right i finished school about 10 years ago started my job at google google 10 years ago was almost certainly the best in the world at this stuff and one of the interesting things to me when i left was that you know the the tool sets they have there if more companies had those tool sets everybody's got these kinds of questions any like new startup any kind of scientifically minded you know small business owner you know like my dad was a small business owner. He was a mechanic. He had an auto garage, right? He had all kinds of, he had, and he was a smart guy, and he had all kinds of interesting scientific questions and approaches to his business, right? Like, 
this is kind of part of how business is done. Like, okay, how many pounds of sheet metal and how many pipes of a given length do I need to buy? And you know, how's it moving through my system? Like, what's my error rate when I bend pipes for mufflers or whatever? It reminds me of word problems. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's it is right. You know, those algebra word problems in school are probably the best business operations lesson you can have. Get really good at those. But the interesting thing is how many people I talk to in business who have those questions, and they're like, "Yeah, I really wish I knew the answer to that." But they have this helplessness because their tool set doesn't give them those answers. That's the problem we're trying to solve. I don't care. I mean, I don't know how to solve the other problem, getting people to be smart. But getting smart people who are currently frustrated by their tools to have better tools—that's something I think we can help with. So that's what we do now. You know, in ten years, even with the product set that we have today, I expect that impact to be a lot bigger. Obviously. How so? Do you think what what kind of questions will people be asking? Uh, you know, what will the implementations be like? Do you think? You know, a, a good example. I always think about. I think it's probably a lot of people think while they're driving because you get stuck in traffic and you think. Like a good example of this is what will happen when we know the carbon emissions impact of carpooling to the dollar, and when we know when we know the cost of routing people in different directions on the road. So, what would happen if all of the data from Tesla from Uber and from Google Maps and Waze was under one roof. What could you do with that data set? I mean, I could spitball all day on that. I think it's what could you do academically if you had that data set? I think you could make a case to governments that's in very clear financial terms, not kind of theoretical, but like here is what we see on the ground and here is how much pollution or traffic congestion, like the economy slippage, whenever you whenever you have too much traffic congestion is fairly well mapped by economists. We will save by making a certain kind of investment in the infrastructure. You know, San Francisco doesn't have a, a highway to get from the south to the north. That's insane. I think with good data, we might be able to demonstrate why that would make sense. A tricky political situation there too. Oh well. I'm what about ser- the trees? What about the trees? No comment. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. I'm not a native San Franciscan. I haven't been slowly brought to a boil. <laughs> I just got here and it was already boiling, and I was like, "Hey, everybody, it's boiling." People are like, "No, the trees, the skyline is great." It's like, yeah, I don't want to look at it for two hours <laughs> trying to drive across the city. I'm not suggesting that you know if we have this information, it forces us to make certain decisions. But I, I think making any decision without maximal information is just stupid, and we shouldn't be doing that ever. So, and I'm not the only one saying this. Everybody's saying this. Everybody's saying. That in theory, when we have all of the quote data, <laughs> we'll be able to do everything, right? Like om- omniscience is the same thing as omnipotence in a way. That's all. Maybe that if that's true, that that could all be true in a very abstract philosophical way. You know, like Descartes talked about this. But <laughs> the very real sense in t- 2016, we don't have the tools to do that. Even if we had the political tools to do that, even if we had the connectivity tools to do that, we don't have the data science tools to do that. A few companies do, and they keep it to themselves. Well, you know what I learned in English. I learned uh, word problems in math class, but in English class, I learned about Big Brother. Why isn't this a little Big Brothery when we have all the data all in one place? Uh, I think it very well could be. I think right now what we have is the companies that have all the data pretty much are ad companies and Palantir customers. Palantir is one of the companies that has this has some really core, awesome technology around data science and analytics, and they sell it as opposed to. The ad tech companies, like you know, I, I say I put Google and Facebook in the, their ad tech companies. They have a lot of data about stuff, and so do Palantir's customers, who are three-letter government agencies and big five banks. So today we've got people selling ads, three-letter government agencies, and big five banks. They have the data. 
when I think about the kind of Big Brother scenario, like how do you fight that kind of centralization of data power? How do you not allow a central omniscient entity to, to rule everything? It's not to stop them from becoming omniscient. You can't. It's to arm up and make everybody else omniscient. Okay. <laughs> so it's to democratize. You can't, you can't disarm the data overlords. You can just arm everyone else. And the more data that regular people have access to, the more data that regular businesses have access to, the more data that universities have access to. So if better. you want to build your freeway and I have a bunch of tree data, that, that bring the tree data. Then I can fight you, your, your freeway data with my tree data, and then. Yeah, trees and parks, yeah. Sunset Boulevard is not the most beautiful road in the world. It could be replaced by a highway. I'm just saying. <laughs> but yeah, that's kind of the point. Like, I, like there's this. I think a lot of people are afraid of this Big Brother thing, so they just try to fight data collection. Like, let's not do data collection. You, but the thing is, you're not going to be able to do that. Well, people are also <laughs> afraid of data collection for the reason that you know you have a you have an agenda. You want this freeway where Sunset Boulevard is, and if you have the data, you can maybe you can tweak the data to make it look like you ought to have your freeway. So, oh yeah. So what you're saying is, if I want my trees, I should arm up, and everybody better kind of get in this data game. Otherwise, you're going to get crushed. Yeah. Okay. It's a practical view. We can debate about whether that's how the world maybe ought to be, or or is is the world more beautiful that way or not. But that's the way the world is, and that's the way the world's growing. So, my view on it is arm everyone else. You know, a good example is one of the things that is coming up a little bit more over the last couple of years, and especially in the last year, is the idea of where the data sits. How subpoenable is a given data vendor right. or data owner? There's a some leak I saw this week, or I don't know if it was a leak. Something may or may not be true. I don't know. I saw it on Twitter. I didn't even click the link. So it was about how it said something about how Yahoo secretly wrote email sniffers to search for certain kinds of activity for the U.S. government through a billion email accounts or something. Right. Well, we and we wonder why people want to run private email servers sometimes. Right. <laughs> it's it's what, like what person could you be talking about? <laughs> all kinds of people. You know, my, my brother has a private email server. All kinds of people. I don't know what you're talking about. I think the reality is that that's going to happen. So, you know, one of the things that we're exploring at Keen is Swiss Data Center, like which to me is like where is, is going to be the future of the Swiss bank. Like people used to hide their money in Switzerland, now they're going to hide their data in Switzerland because it's maybe less likely that people will use the court system to force you know private enterprises to secretly disclose data to an entity that could be a big brother like entity. That's something that's. Coming now. This is the stuff that's happening right now. And I think, I mean, I, I don't know. I've got all kinds of hopes and thoughts on the like what'll happen politically, but that's not what I do. So like right. what, what I do is run a private company. Exactly. And what we can do is make it so that our customers own their data instead of us owning it. And you know, make make it so that businesses of different kinds have access to this kind of stuff. And one of the ways that people use us, for instance, is we're growing traction in Germany because we don't force certain kinds of data collection. Like if you use Google Analytics, it's just going to record this stock stuff all the time. Because everything we do is developer configurable, and because in Germany there's certain kinds of data. Like Germany has some of the most advanced privacy rights, data privacy rights for individual citizens. Companies in Germany can use us and specifically not collect certain kinds of things that you're not allowed to collect, which I think is awesome. Like I think that's a really good example of of our technology helping avoid some of the Big Brother scenario stuff. And I'm sure there are people using us in other places where they're using us to record all kinds of stuff that, you know, the liabilities on them and 
Yeah, I, you know, I didn't even mean to take it so much down this dark pathway. I'm just, I'm just. <laughs> you just said the words Big Brother, and you know, I'm a I, well, I'm Greek, just so. because I just self-confess here. You know, I'm I'm an old San Francisco hippie at heart. So you know, you start talking to me about building a highway, and I'm I'm gonna, you know. Yell bloody murder. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, but, I'm an enlightenment hippie at heart, so you're running a data company. So if you ask me about Big Brother, I'll talk for like three hours. About all right, because I've got some way I've rationalized my work. But let's go back <laughs> because before before you talked about that freeway, I was super into it. This idea of the way that the the data that we could collect from all the vehicles that we could, you know, and I was thinking not only about carbon emissions but also about. I was thinking about traffic patterns, and you know, with self driving cars, presumably you could avoid a lot. You know, you could. The throughput of people moving from place, you know, point A to point B, could presumably be astronomically yeah, better. You can find some really interesting stuff. Like, you, like there's some really interesting applied machine learning analysis that's helping people detect Parkinson's disease by the accelerometers in your phone. If we have a because we got a large, large enough data set that we could tag the people who have Parkinson's, and we know what their phone accelerometer behavior was like inside of, you know, Angry Birds or whatever. For long enough that we can detect Parkinson's earlier through these systems than we can through getting medical checkups. Like, that's fucking awesome. You can only do that if you have this kind of data in aggregate. This week I was in Denver talking to an entrepreneur who started a company that's using similar concepts inside of Fitbits and health trackers to early detect diabetes based on their motion. That's the kind of stuff that I think is. To me, that's the really inspiring stuff. Is that when, what, what can we do with like broadly aggregated data that you can't even do inside of a science lab? I think that's where there's a real, some really interesting stuff. Like most of this technology has basically been used to get you to, to do one of three things: get you to spend more money at a casino, get you to click on ads, and to screw you on your insurance premiums. Like that's most the most sophisticated data science has been used largely for that. I think that it will be used in a lot of different ways when the tools get out there. I'm all for it. Do you have other? I mean, you're painting. You're so you're such a good futurist, and I'm such an old hippie. Do you have <laughs> other? Do you have other visions that you've talked about that you've thought about? I think you're gonna have to be more specific. Okay. <laughs> um, we've talked about medicine. We've talked about uh, transportation. I am. I'm a little. I am interested in the in the autonomous cars. How? Because I'm confused. How do we get? From where we are today, with a few, I, we see them driving near our office with little spinnies on top. How do we get from a few of those to a fleet of successfully moving around cars? What's the role of data in that? So, how we get there, I don't know. What's the role of data in that? There's one really interesting piece, which did you see the fatal car crash that involved a Tesla a few months ago? Yes. Did you see the blog post response that Tesla issued? I think later that day. No, but can you summarize it? I can't summarize it, but there's one really interesting point that they made, which was they reported on the number of miles that self-driving Teslas have driven to get to this first accident, <laughs> and the number of miles that a normal driver drives to get to an a- the average accident. And it was pretty stark. I don't remember the numbers, but it was pretty obvious just from that one data set. Pretty obvious that self-driving cars are a lot safer. <laughs> and this was a case where the self-driving car probably wasn't at fault. I don't know if the courts have come down. I mean, that, that's what it sounded like. But of course, I was reading Tesla PR, so they would probably make it sound that way no matter what. But the data piece is pretty conclusive to me, at least as a citizen. I was like, oh, well, I don't remember exactly what it was. It was like, we've driven like 400 million miles or something, some crazy number. I don't know. And normally, drivers have accidents every, there's an accident every, I don't know, three million road miles or something. I don't know the number. You'd have to look it up. But I bet it's less than that. But how do we know that? Well, we know that because those cars, while they're, Driving around and making all these decisions, they're diligently recording the decisions they made, and 
the mileage that they've traveled and the routes that they've gone on, they've driven on. So that's a system that can actually get better as time goes by. The more miles they have, you you know, the better that system gets. Whereas it doesn't seem to be that way with drivers. As an individual driver, the more miles you get, the better driver you are. Until eventually maybe diminishing returns. But I mean, if all other things being equal, more miles I think makes you right. a better driver. There's some other factors that might correlate with mileage that maybe hurt you as a driver. Like your vision gets worse or your reaction time, but as you age or something. But the machines don't age and the same algorithm is driving all those miles and learning from all of those encounters with pedestrians and with cyclists and with other cars. So as that network expands, it actually becomes a safer and safer driver in a way that we don't. And especially with states like moving backwards on driver education, you know, like I grew up near Missouri, I know you didn't at least in the 90s have to take driver's ed to drive a fucking car. <laughs> And guess what? They they can take that Missouri driver's license and drive all over the developed world. So I'm not certain that we're actually getting better, even just from a societal level at driving. And the machines are getting better every day. They're out there on the road and they're taking in new inputs and they're learning from their mistakes. Uh, that's number one. And number two is what happens when more of the other cars on the road are self-driving. Now they can synchronize their behavior. Like so, I kind of have this vision of a world where like two cars, like okay, there's two cars. Okay. Uh, you got your hands one in front yeah, of the other. Yeah, one in front of the other, right? I, I, you know, you're you're in the left lane and I'm in the right lane. Okay. You're a little bit ahead of me. Yes. So maybe I'm in your blind spot. Okay. But if we're self-driving cars, I'm not in your blind spot. There's no blind spot. <laughs> you know exactly where I am because right. you have eyes everywhere. And if we're synchronized, let's say you needed to come into my lane and I need to go into your lane. You ever have this encounter with a driver where it's like, oh, good, they're trying to come into the same way I'm trying to go. Yes. So we can switch a little bit here. But it takes some recognition and some turn signals, and the other driver has to get it, all that stuff. But it's kind of beautiful when that happens. But I imagine a world where those are both controlled by the same algorithm. This just happens. That's just it. Like you can imagine those kinds of negotiations happening far in advance. Like, hey, every other car on the road, at some point in the next three miles, I need to get over two lanes to the right. Can we do this in a way that's elegant instead of creating fucking traffic jam because I hit my blinker and nobody would let me in and I'm stuck and everything's backing up for miles because of this? And that person's texting and. Right, and if there's a way, there's you, there's often a way to execute what you want to execute on the road in a, in a way that doesn't make anyone else reach their destination later than they would. So, if you could communicate that and kind of trade on that future, you could actually negotiate this stuff ahead of time. And machines can do that; people can't do that. So, the more of these cars are on the road, the safer and more efficient it gets. So, the only way we can do that is by monitoring what's going on, learning from what's happened, and I think that's the role that data plays in it. Okay, but if you say you don't know exactly how we get from where we are to where we're going to get with driving self-driving cars, and you can't tell me exactly what the world is going to look like ten years from now and how data is going to play a role in it, then how can you be sure that we can come along for the ride if we're just living in today with our product and helping people today, and we don't know what the future brings? How does that work? Well, I, I don't know what the future brings, but I can speak convincingly about it. <laughs> it's got to come for something. I know, but how? Uh, how, do you, like, <laughs> how can we stay compatible with the future if we yeah, don't know what I mean, the future is? You know, to some degree, I think that comes from a couple of things. One, this actually runs to like corporate strategy. How does a business stay relevant generally? No business can predict the future. If they can, you know, there might be a hedge fund in Connecticut that can do that, but nobody else seems to be able to predict the future. How do they stay relevant given that they can't tell the future is coming? So this is like. Totally abstract strategy. There are a few options. One, guess on a certain future and put everything behind it. And then if that future develops, you look like a genius and you win. Okay. Um, which isn't always a bad move, right? Right. Uh, that can work. Number two is diversify. 
let's say that there are three outcomes that are the most likely out of all the millions of outcomes. There are three that are the most likely. So how do we make ourselves set ourselves up in a position where any of those three would be acceptable to us and we would survive? Maybe we thrive in case A, we kind of thrive in case B, and case C is difficult, but we don't die. We <laughs> we survive. If there's a, a sequence of tactics and, and a strategic set that allows you to win no matter what, in those situations like in craps, if you had a chance, if you didn't have to roll dice to load up the craps table, you would just be like, oh, it's craps. I'm going to load up all the numbers. I'm going to make sure that if a four gets rolled, a five gets rolled, a six or an eight or a nine or a ten, I'm going to make money. But you can actually do that in business, which is interesting. You don't have to, you don't have to like you can load up the six even without waiting for a six to be rolled. You could also do that in craps, but they yeah, give okay. you bad, they give you worse odds. So right. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to. I don't sure. want to disappoint you. I know, <laughs> as my craps teacher, you would yeah. be disappointed if I didn't remember that. So, how does that translate to what we do and how we look at the world? I mean, for five years now, people have been telling me to pick a vertical and sell analytics into that vertical, and uh, I've said no. <laughs> we might do it occasionally, and we're going to start doing it a little bit more after five years. But if you focus too narrowly on it, what happens if you pick the wrong one? Right? What What would happen if you were selling analytics to the social games industry in 2010? Well, you'd make a shitload of money until 2011, right? What would happen if you were selling analytics into the daily deals industry in 2011? You'd make a shitload of money until 2013 rolled around. Got it. If you over-index on a given market, you're betting everything on that market. We just don't do that. That's from a kind of go-to-market perspective. From a product perspective, what we've essentially said is we make a product for developers. Those developers will build us into the products they're making. So this is a very diversified strategy. The reason it makes a lot of sense is developers, you know, that are using us tend to be employed, and employment is the best leading indicator that a vertical might be working, <laughs> right? You know, there are ten million, maybe twenty million developers in the world. Um, depends how you slice them. Those developers, at one point, none of them worked at daily deals companies, and at some point, thousands of them worked at daily deals companies, and now we're at a point where maybe you know very few of them do. But they were developers the whole time, right? So all those developers who used to work at Groupon work somewhere now, right? And whatever tools they adopted and enjoyed when they were at Groupon, they're probably using wherever they are now. And it's probably in a different industry given that there's no other jobs in daily deals. So by betting on developers, we're essentially saying employment follows the dollars, developers follow the employment. If we make something that's generally useful to them, they'll bring us with them wherever they go. So that's kind of the survival strategy. The survival strategy is we're not smart enough to guess. We've assumed we're not smart enough to guess the market. So we're going to find a way to diversify on the market. And that's, that's kind of how we do it. And from a technology standpoint, what steps can you take not to make your technology become obsolete? Like I, you know, I knew if I had a friend with a Commodore sixty four, it was awesome, you know, but no one would want to use it now. I think playing at the right abstraction level is one of the most important pieces here, right? So, like, Commodore is not a business I would be in because <laughs> even if you are dominant, like the sixty four was pretty dominant. Another two years roll around, and you have to come up with a new way to be dominant. So you basically have to win every hand, or you right. die. Right? Like what, right now, we're watching Nintendo, which is of all those OG companies by far the most successful in the long term so far. But they just had a flop. It's the first flop in a long time. The first, they flopped in like ninety something with the GameCube, and then they just flopped with the Wii U. And Nintendo is struggling because of that. Because they actually have to, they have to win every single hand. <laughs> they can't fold a few hands and then survive. So. If what they could do is keep trying to build new consoles and hope that the next one hits, you really can't miss two in a row. Then you're Sega and you die. Or they can start diversifying. So what we saw with the Pokemon rollout, what we saw with them developing software for other people's hardware for the first time, putting IP onto the iOS App Store and on the Android apps, Android Google Play Store, we saw them diversify. We saw them disconnect their business future from are we making the top console. So how do you apply that to where we are? 
I would do it by making a highly configurable API-based product. <laughs> that's, that's how I would you do did. it. Yeah, imagine that. Um, <laughs> you, can, you can learn a whole lot about what strategies I would deploy just by looking at what we do. So then let uh, me flip the coin then. Let me say for our customers, how will the best organizations be using data in the future? How will it be important and valuable? You know, I think that data it becomes the most impactful when it's invisible. Or when you don't know it's analytics or data science you're dealing with, right? So, a lot of organizations right right now, the, the state of the art seems to be you make a centralized analytics reporting and data science team, and they're the they're the ones that are scientific thinkers, and then all the other departments in the organization try to work with that team. I don't think that's how it's going to be in the future. And indeed, I'm not, I'm not I'm making this up. I'm just kind of stealing ideas from Facebook, which is again, like I said, I think they're the best at it right now. <laughs> and what Facebook has is. Inside their product organization, they have analytics as one of the four major citizens. So they have product management, engineering, design, and analytics. Those four citizens work in harmony on everything they make. So it's not go over there to the analysis team and then hope that, you know, file a request and hope they get us a report back. It's we have an analyst here. And the tools are easy enough for all the teams to use because their internal tools honestly don't look that different than ours, than what we sell. What they're basically able to do is embed. The scientific thinking inside of everyone else's workflow, right? So, like, you're a marketer okay. by training and you're by by professional background, and you have a math background. So, when so you're capable, just as capable as an engineer, because you understand the same levels of math to look at, you know, how many page views came from this blog post versus that one, and actually interpret that. The difficult thing is getting the tools in your hands. But if the tools you're already using, like, let's say that you're using. A content management system as a journalist to write content and to you know publish pieces. If in that same content management system you've got analytical feedback and subjective feedback in the same stream, you can see the comments from users, you can see the tweet penetration, you can see the read completion rate, you can see the viral rate and the share rate. You might not think, oh, it's great that we've got analytics in our system now. You might just think, I know how what percentage of people share my story. Everyone can understand what the what you mean when you say what percentage of people share your story on Twitter. Right. What percentage of people who start reading it finish it? You know, what's the median amount of time people spend on the page? And you can ask me why median instead of average. We can go into that's a long conversation, but that doesn't sound like data science analytics. It just sounds like I'm getting a little bit more detail on how my, on what's going on with the stuff that I make. Uh, the best companies are going to be the ones that do it that way. The ones that integrate pretty deeply into their workflow. The worst companies are the ones who were like. Every quarter, the editor in chief asks the data team for roll ups of how every article performed, and they try to make subject matter decisions based on that. That's they're, they're, Those companies are going to be beat by the ones who move quickly and who, everyone in the organization that can have quantitative information that can help them with their job is going to get it. I mean, you're describing the example you're giving is, is one about, you know, the example you gave is blog posts and sharing and, and a very sort of online, fast moving. Company. What if I'm making products that aren't like that? Yeah, I mean, a good example could be like, let's say that you're in like a warehouse. Yeah, timeless industry. You're in supply chain logistics and you're running a warehouse. So there are a lot of things that Amazon did really well. Amazon does a lot of things scientifically really well. One of the things that they've done really well is they know everything about their warehouse. They know the seconds that it takes for a forklift to go get a pallet. They know. The route distance for to pick up items. They know the lead time on everything in the in their warehouses. They know they have tons of options for how to ship anything to point B. They know how to vary which point A should I send from to get you the thing that you want. They're so far ahead on warehousing, even compared to some of the 
you know, the competitors from the last gen, like the Walmarts of the world. Why are they so far ahead on warehousing? Is because they have data science up and down their company. They don't look at it like an add-on. It's how they think. They think scientifically, and they needed the answers to various questions, and they had the resources to build the tools to give them the answers. So, to me, I think every industry that isn't deeply scientific and getting as close to real time as possible is going to be disrupted by somebody like that. Who is? Yes, they had the best storefront, but so did you know Buy.com and Half.com and a bunch of other. You know, Frugal had, which was Google's <laughs> Google product thing. They they had the traffic too, but they couldn't get it done. I think they didn't have the warehousing data science stuff figured out, and I don't actually know very much about that business. But the point is that, I mean, that's a really old industry. You don't think about forklift drivers as data scientists. You don't think about the even the person running the forklift team, the the floor manager in a warehouse as a as an analytics professional, but the ones who win, you know, as I dig into the companies who have won, they, it's, there's a pretty consistent theme, and it seems to be that when they have scientific questions, first of all, they're allowed to have scientific questions, and second of all, they have the tools to answer them. You know, you talk about analytics being invisible and it just being a part of the workflow, and we won't even think about it. But I can think of examples in my own as as a consumer uh, examples where. It's not invisible. It's something that I want to see. I feel like I, I'm increasingly accustomed when I, if there's any sort of web service I use or even a game I play, I want to, like, I have this sort of nerdy desire to know how I'm doing. And I get, I frankly get frustrated when I can't find that information because now that I work again, I know it existed somewhere. <laughs> Why can't I see it? Yeah. Is that a fad? Is that? No, I don't think that's a fad at all. I think that's, you know, we'll talk about like the the billion or so people in the world who are in the most developed economies and have most access to this kind of stuff. I'd say that you're probably in the the 90th percentile plus. Like that you're in the minority in terms of really, really craving that stuff, but it's growing. I don't think that's a fad. I think curiosity is a natural human trait that hopefully is never going to go away. And quantitative exposure is like all kinds of exposure. It's something that can only grow. It's interesting that you mentioned games. Like games are one of the ways that this stuff has, is growing. One of the reasons this stuff is growing, right? Like, why is it I have my entire track record from some throwaway iPhone game in my player profile, and with a SaaS product that I'm paying, or that you know maybe the company's paying five, six thousand dollars a month for? I can't tell anything about what's going on. Right. You know the things we learn as consumers using software they they inform what we demand as business users because it turns out every business user. Is also a human, <laughs> and they consume non-business things most of the time, or right. a lot of the time. So, I don't think it's a fad. I don't think it's going away at all. But I do think a lot of people don't think of that as analytics. They don't think about a leaderboard in their game as an analytics view, right? They don't think, you know, Strava and Runkeeper. Those are just nothing but analytics apps. Those are analytics apps. Fitbit is just an analytics device. It's all it is. It's a thing that records stuff and shows you dashboards about it. But most people don't bucket that as analytics when you ask them about the impact of analytics. They don't think about the fact that that's what those products are, and that's what I meant when I said invisible. I don't mean that it's not there. I just mean that people don't maybe compartmentalize it. They don't describe it that way. They think it's. But it sounds like you almost feel like people notice it when it's not there, and it's an irritant. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. People want all kinds of information, and quantitative information is great. You know, like I like to know how many mentions I get. I like to know how my tweets have been performing. I like to know. Everybody likes to know how many notifications they get on Facebook. That weird experience when you open Facebook and it has like a little like thirty three next to the thing and you're like whoa thirty three various things for me like like that's right. amazing and they all about me yeah and like most of them are not even really okay. <laughs> anything but you know that they can't take that away 
You can't take away that little number, that little red badge. You can't take that away. <laughs> There's no way. The quantitative information is addictive, like all information. So I just meant that people, I don't think people even, like the notification center, you know, or the, sorry, the notification, whatever that thing is in, in Facebook, that drop down, I don't think people see that as an analytical, analytics feature. I do and we do, maybe just because right. what we do. Right. I mean, it's hard not, it's hard to unknow what you know, but. Yeah. Uh, in many cases, I don't think what I know is making me notice something I wouldn't. It's just making me aware of something that I would have noticed and wouldn't have understood the technology required to provide it. You know, yeah. what what does it take to show the customer that history that we're talking about? The stuff that the, you know, the same thing that exists in the game. You know, can that be exposed to me? You know, is somebody hiding it in a black box, or did it just never yeah. get captured? Or yeah, like when I've had people ask me, like, what's a well-known example of analytics being kind of natively put into a product? And my favorite example is YouTube. Like, you look at a YouTube video, and in the bottom right, there's a little counter that tells you how many views that video has. That is a super complicated and extremely difficult analytical system to build. When you imagine a, a video is going viral, and you, that counter has got to go up into the sort of billions range, right? And it doesn't seem to be that cache because when you reload it, it goes up. Like that's a, actually a fairly complicated systems engineering. Feet to perform, but to the user, it's like, well, of course, it has a view count. That's not a big deal. Yeah, I guess when you say, of course, I mean, I, I'm not an engineer, and I feel like, yeah, of course, I mean, a counter. Like, I picture the guy at the train station going click, click, click. You know, how hard is that? Click, click, yeah. click, click on the little clicker. Yeah, it's hard to picture a billion. Yeah, but that's the thing. Like, that's, when I say it's invisible, that's what I mean. Like, it's it's not. That doesn't look like it's not a dashboard. It's not like a. It's not a line graph or whatever people think when they think analytics. That's just a number on the page. But imagine YouTube without that number. You know, I don't want to claim to know what it would be like, but I think it would be shit. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, be, if they suddenly I, removed that feature, it would be there would be an uproar. There would be an uproar. And if they never had had that feature, maybe the product wouldn't have worked at all. Right. So even though that's not what the core product is, the core product is hosting and displaying videos. That's the core product, but the validation that comes from that counter or the community yeah. that comes from watching something, you're like, ah, I'm in the know because Honey Badger, it's me and 12 million people. We're all watching Honey Badger. Yeah, and in, to some degree, that's the product. Right. To some degree, the product is the quantified popularity of whatever you're seeing. You know, I saw Gangnam Style before it was at a billion. I'm pretty awesome. <laughs> Somebody saw Gangnam Style before it was at 100 million. And they know it. You know, probably about 50 million people because right. I'm sure everybody watches that yeah. at least twice. <laughs> <laughs> So to some degree, that is the product. It's, it's hard. It's hard. It's hard to know. Like this is when analytics becomes uh, so core that you can't really distinguish between the real experience and the analytics, right? Like, and yet if you thought about removing the analytics from it, it you it would fall apart. Pitchforks. Yeah, like you're seeing it in gaming. Gaming is actually like the like the product itself is supposed to be the most fun thing. It's a game. It's, it's you know in theory oriented around the fun of actually playing it. And yet, a lot of a lot of gamers you talk to about, oh yeah, what did you, what game did you play this weekend? They'll be like, I played this game. You know, how was it? And I'm like, well, I got to this level really quickly, and then tonight I'm going to get to this next level, and I'm collecting. It's like a whole bunch of counters going up, right? As opposed to actual the actual experience that they were having. I think that there's some there will be some backlash from that. There already was in the Facebook world where some games that only had counters going up <laughs> and didn't have any fun components started to fail. But I mean, the trend is clear. Some of these are even really great games, and yet the experience that sticks with, pe- with people seems to be the analytical stuff. You know, you speak very confidently and uh, compellingly about the role of data today and tomorrow. I am wondering what 
do you think some other organizations are getting wrong about data or organizations or or people like I said I rose I raised the whole big brother thing you said well big brothers happening whether you like it or not but what we can do is make a lot of little brothers to sort of keep him in check so what are some misconceptions or some things that people have wrong about data in your mind I think there are a lot of things I think the the main the thing right now that a lot of people have wrong and it's just kind of awkward given how we started the conversation. But one of the like the main thing that a lot of people have wrong is this idea that bots and AI and machines that learn on their own, they're here now. They weren't here yesterday, but now they're here and now everything has to run through them. You know, because Gartner said a couple things, because Mark Zuckerberg talked on stage about different kind of bots that are completely unrelated to data. People just this this buzz has begun to develop, and I think it's gonna subside pretty quickly. Um, the technology hasn't made any significant leaps in the last three or four years, from my view. And yet the buzz has gone has grown hundredfold. I mean, it's it's huge now. This is a thing. Like, you know, the current shiny hammer right now is machine learning. And everyone's running around saying, We've got this great shiny hammer. There must be a huge market of shiny nails that we can hit with this hammer. And they're thinking backwards. You're supposed to start by looking at what kind of nails are out there and then build the hammer for it. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people have that wrong. There are a lot of new companies getting started in this space. There are a lot of like the largest companies in I'd say outside of those like those four or five kind of internet native companies the the largest companies are becoming obsessed with like machine learning and AI and there's not a ton of meaning to it it's, there's a lot of PR uh, this has happened before like Deep Blue was a huge PR exercise when when it beat Kasparov and as a result everyone went apeshit and they're just like if it can win at chess it can win at everything and it's like no it's a chess bot of course, yeah it can win at chess it's a chess bot Right. Google did a, a similar PR exercise over the last couple of years with AlphaGo, which is a deep learning bot. See, deep learning is that's not the same as machine learning. That's not the same, which wasn't the same as AI. Uh-huh. Now we figured out how to make the thing sentient by rebranding it and making it good at a different game. Now it's good at Go. <laughs> and, you know, it's it's a, it's it is a nice incremental step. It's way harder to make a machine play Go than chess. You can't brute force it and all this other stuff, but it's still a Go bot. It plays Go really, really well. And you know, Watson was a similar exercise when Watson, you know, beat everybody at Jeopardy. But it doesn't play Wheel of Fortune. <laughs> well, you know, you could flip a coin to play Wheel of Fortune. I'm not <laughs> actually the word guessing part's probably I enjoyed that part. Like There's some skill fortune, to it. But, but just because a major company has put a lot of money into a research project to do something that gets great PR. For a certain tech set, doesn't make that tech set suddenly more relevant to the marketplace than it was before. The marketplace is the same regardless of whether or not you know the top Go player just lost to a robot. So, the marketplace is where the actual signal is, where the actual truth is to me, not you know what vendors are saying. Vendors say all kinds of shit to try to grow business. So, I think a lot of people have that wrong right now. Like I, I can sit down, you, like you put me across the table with the CMO, the head of marketing at any Fortune 500 company, even the ones the ones that are really good at this stuff, and I will probably be, asked, be able to ask them like 10 questions to find something they don't understand and they don't have an answer to. I'm not a machine learning super bot. You know, if you just ask people, like you ask a head of marketing at like a major brand, you know, how much money do you spend on advertisements and they'll be like, "Oh, you know, 33 million dollars a year is what our, our media buyers did last year, whatever." Like, okay. How much of that was spent on online ads? It'll be like ten million dollars. How did you split that between display ads on random websites and you know Google and 
paid content and Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn or whatever. They'll know those numbers. If you dig in one step deeper, nobody knows the freaking answers. Very rarely do they know answers to questions like, what job title correlates most directly with people converting through your marketing funnel into paid customers? And they'll be like, well, we don't really do our campaigns by job title. I'm like, but the data's in there. You know the job title of the target of each one person that clicked. They just don't know the answers to these questions because they don't have, well, I won't explain why. They don't know the answers to these questions, and yet they're trying to figure out how to deploy millions of dollars on deep learning. <laughs> like, if you can't tell me basic numbers of things that have happened in the past, reasonably up to date data, where I can segment a little bit and drill in a little bit on the sample set, basic, simple analytics. I think we're getting ahead of ourselves if we're like, how do we make an automated decision bot that can tell me what, tell my data team what questions to ask and all this other stuff? Like, it, it sounds like a lot of fluff. A lot of people are talking about that right now. So, that's the thing that I, I mean, I, I, I think is ridiculous. Like, <laughs> we're not even counting things very well right, right. now. And, and, what, and where you started out a while back was saying, you don't think the data is going to become sentient. You just think the data is going to become uh, more accessible and allow people, human people, to make smarter decisions. Yeah. But you know, but the reality is the downside of that is it'll also allow human people to make stupider decisions if they don't interpret it well and human people will make buying decisions based on all kinds of factors that aren't necessarily rational, right? Like they might just think, "Hey, my CMO or my CIO has a urgent mission for us to make sure we're spending 20% of our money on deep learning this year." Right. Like that's an absurd. You'd think that's an absurd way to make decisions, but that's pretty common actually. And it doesn't matter how many times Gartner rolls out their hype cycle where something goes way, way up and then it goes into like the trough of this is bullshit, we just realized it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> they'll still spend a bunch of money on the uptick. And because of that, during the uptick, new companies will be formed, they'll get certain amounts of sales traction, they'll raise a bunch of money, they'll sell a bunch of bullshit to the bullshit buyer, and then it'll come back down. And right now we're seeing I'm seeing that a lot with machine learning AI stuff. That's not to say, I mean, machine learning and AI are having a huge impact on industry generally, where there's an actual problem to be solved, and people say, oh, here's a potential solution to that problem, maybe there's some things we can use here. But that's actually, it's happening the other way around right now. People are, I've had frequent conversations in the last couple months about this where, you know, like, oh, you, you, you're really cutting edge analytics data company. You know, how can we use deep learning in our business? I'm like, can I tell you about my business? And you tell me how we can use deep learning in our business. And I'm like, that's crazy. <laughs> Why don't you tell me about your business and I'll just provide general suggestions? Don't bias me toward a certain answer before <laughs> before you ask me any questions. That's that's not a good way to learn. So I'm seeing a lot of that. Just count just count stuff right now. Like that's a good start. If you're not counting good stuff, you know the answers to basic factual questions right now. Get those first. Even if we do get machine overlords, we're gonna have to feed them the right facts. Bots eat facts. They need the facts. So a lot of companies are trying to get to the bots before they actually know things. It's totally broken, Kevin. Let's fix it. Um. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to, you know, you can't fight the hype cycle. You just have to make sure you have a timestamp tweet points it out, so you can look back later and be like, "See this tweet I wrote that said that was bullshit." <laughs> See, it's almost as if that timestamp is, is a form of analytics. <laughs> <laughs> We've covered a lot of ground today, but let me just throw a few sort of lightning round questions at you, and we'll see if anything comes to your mind. Organization you would most love to work with. You look. You've already. Ha- we've already worked with NASA, so that one's off the table. An organization you would love to have the chance to work with over the course of 
the next 50 years. So I would love to work with Nintendo. I think Nintendo is awesome, and I know that they have a cultural bias against kind of analytical stuff, like a lot of creatives do. I mean, I, I even have a gut bias against analytical thinking, because sometimes human expertise is better, and you can't kind of measure and optimize your way to art or to culture, and that's what they do. But I think they would be stronger if they also optimize the things that can be optimized. So when you ask me that question, I think a lot about companies who, because they don't want to become robots, they refuse all enhancement. I'm much more like, let's be cyborgs, let's keep the human parts and add the robot parts that make sense. right? Like I'd love to have some robot knees. Knees are stupid. Nobody's knees last long enough. Right. I want to fix that part. So anyway, Nintendo would be really cool. I've just been a huge Nintendo geek forever and as I watch them start to struggle a little bit, it scares me. Like I'm, I, I think you know, I'm a dad now. It's important to me that Nintendo be around for 50 years so that my son can <laughs> can spend a lot of money on Nintendo like I did. So uh, <laughs> I think they'd be really interesting. Some organizations I'm really interested in, like you're talking about dream organizations, ignoring all the kind of commercial factors. Yeah, of course. I think a lot of my favorite potential use cases are in the nonprofit and NGO space. Okay. And for instance, like the uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, uh, the Malaria Initiative. I think we may be able to help with that. I don't know if that'll happen or how to do that, but I think there's some really interesting stuff you could do with connected sensors if you had the perspective on data being easy that we have. Like a lot of people, like an old guard entry, and this is, you know, that was started by Bill Gates. He's like one of the most brilliant technical innovators, right? But that group's exposure to data analytics and data science is dated. So what that does is it gives a culture a sort of learned helplessness around data. Like, oh, the top exec says that data project would be too big, it would cost too much, it would be take too long, so we can't do that kind of thing. That's a, that's something that you hear frequently from people who whose first exposure to systems and computer science was 80s and 90s is the data stuff is not going to work. I think we could help dramatically with that. So and that, you know most of what that foundation does seems to be right on. You know what humans ought to be working on when they get rich, <laughs> which so I'm, I think it's a really great foundation. I think I think there's a lot of stuff that can be done around voter turnout, and there's also a lot of stuff that can be done around voting system transparency. One of the most interesting and confusing parts about our system is that there there are all these levels of voter transparency that were instilled into our into like American democracy. And I don't know about the rest of the republics in the world very much, but at least in America, you know, like. Individual citizens can sign up to watch the ballots, watch the paperwork, watch the counting. Like, you, we can get citizen oversight, which you know, average citizens can show up. It's way harder to corrupt average citizens, especially if you don't know who they're going to be. So the idea is that we can make sure things are counted well and all that. But now that voting has gone electronic, we don't have a good analog to that. So I think that that's an area where a third-party system that's just collecting stuff to corroborate could be really useful. So I think that, and by third-party, I don't mean. <laughs> Third political party. Um, you mean you? Just some some <laughs> some enterprise, like right. something something like nonprofit, something that's unrelated necessarily. Like in general, I think the citizenry has a a bias toward just making sure that the votes work and the system works. And I think it's it's one of these things you can't really talk about. People from major political parties have they will never talk about. Everyone's like, this is fine. Well, I guess somebody right now is talking about it from a major political party, but he doesn't really count. Um, right. <laughs> it's kind of kind of a maniac, but it's it's an it, I think it's an important thing to do to offset when these people show up and start claiming voter fraud as a thing, and ignoring 
the limited data we have around it and just saying voter fraud is such a thing that we need to do these laws and we need to institute these policies. They're able to say that because we don't have data on how this stuff actually happens. But why don't we go into the industries where there's huge capital incentives to avoid fraud, right? Like the iPhone app for Illinois Lotto probably has a better system for making sure people don't get extra, (laughs) (laughs) right? Because they have to, they have a huge incentive to do that. We, we could get that data, we can prove the system works if it does, and if it doesn't work, we can prove that it doesn't. So I think that's really interesting. In general, getting stuff to the citizens is really interesting to me. I also, when I, you ever use that Facebook graph search? No. It's this thing that lets you be like, oh, well, I want to find people who are in, have lived in San Francisco for these many year, this many years and that have these likes or whatever. It's like a simple search to dig through the structured Facebook graph. Oh. I don't know if it's still a thing, but they launched it a few years ago. I haven't heard about it in a long time, and you haven't even heard of it. So I'm a very like. This user. was like that year when Facebook was trying to build a search engine and Google was trying to build a social network. Right. Oh, right. <laughs> they're just chasing each other's tails, and they were, yeah. they weren't good at the other one's job. Yeah, <laughs> at all. But it was a pretty cool tool. When I saw it, I was like, "What if I like one thing that would be really awesome is to be able to do that with like political vote record stuff." So like. Four senators who voted yes on this bill, how many of them receive campaign funding from a group that's funded by these billionaires? Right. Like that sort of thing. To be able to do that quickly. We can do that, but it's like a ton of work and a lot of digging through stuff. To be able to do that quickly, and moreover, to be able to do that in a way that's structured so that the analysis could become automated would be really interesting. We'd find ourselves in a situation where as soon as the bill clears the floor or doesn't, we would be able to find the correlations to funding automatically. So instead of a, right now, a journalist has to think, huh, I wonder what, polit- like, they've got a narrative already. So let's kind of, I'm going to dig into the data to see if it's true that, you know, NRA backed senators did this or that or whatever it is. They have to have a hypothesis and then guess. But that data is a matter of public record. If it were in the right system, and this is actually something that, Dan and I did at Keen in 2012, imported some of this data just as a test to play around with it. If we were in the right system, we would be able to find that stuff automatically. I think there's some really interesting stuff that could come from that. I don't even know who who the customer is. That's just a project I think is really interesting. And then my, my dream customer right now that's an actual private enterprise that kind of makes sense is Tesla. I think Tesla would be really cool to work with. You know, if only because if I ever get a car, I want to get a Tesla. <laughs> I hope I never get a car, but if I do, I, I want to get a Tesla. And they have some pretty cool dashboards in the car, but uh, there's so much more stuff I would want to see. I think it would be really interesting. So you're saying you, you, there's things you actually want to put inside the car? Yeah, inside the car. Like, I mean, so much stuff. Oh, okay. Like, you ever have this experience where, let's say you have a friend that goes and they get a certain, you know, like recently our, our mutual friend Micah got a, a Volkswagen Golf, a GTI. Yes. As soon as he got that, I started seeing them everywhere. Yeah, you had that experience. Where yes, he, and it's I don't know if it's because they're more common. And he's on trend, or if because now that I've seen it so much up close, so many times, I'm starting to look for them. I think Volkswagen may be a little behind trend right now, but well, I'm mean, now, yeah, <laughs> but <laughs> fair enough. Uh, but it'd be really cool if I had a car that I'm is with me every time I'm out seeing cars, and I could ask it questions like, "How many Volkswagens have we seen on the road?" To me, like I don't know, I really like Knight Rider. If you ever watched, did you watch Night Rider? Night Rider? I'm I'm the right age to have You're watched right, Night Rider. Like uh, when it, I'm a younger sibling, so uh, you okay. know I, I I grew up with Night Rider too. All right. To me, the really interesting stuff 
when he talked to Kit on, on his yeah. watch or whatever. The really interesting stuff was when Kit had a little bit of historical context on stuff. Oh, yeah. That's really, well, obviously I think historical context in software is interesting. <laughs> That's my whole career. Uh, that of- stuff's really cool to me, and I think there's a lot of opportunity for that. Like, man, like I, I fell off my diet and I ate at Burger King. Like, have we been pa- have we passed some Burger King billboards lately? If your car's just like, actually, without having we hadn't seen them in years, and now there's this one billboard we've been driving past. Or maybe you could notice that stuff automatically because it's because I drive it to a you know fucking Burger King. Like, this is the kind of stuff that we by having cameras and location data and internet connectivity on a decently strong computer in your car, which Tesla has. We could do all kinds of interesting stuff. I know. And the way I think about it is, can we find the same voice actor who did the voice of Kit, so Mr. That, Feeny? Yeah, Mr. Feeny. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I learned that recently that that, that was Mr. Feeny um, so, <laughs> from Boy Meets World. Obviously, we would want that. Right. That goes without saying. I think there's just a lot of interesting stuff we could do by giving by putting some long-term memory into your car. I think that would be a really interesting thing. Well, it's sort of like the old phrase: "If these walls could talk." Yeah, and then some trend stuff too. You just, yeah, if these walls could talk, but this is like we don't have the smart home yet. Right. But we do have the smart car. That's pretty cool. Like to me, Tesla could be like the iPhone by opening it up so people like us can throw our ideas in it. Or it could be like the Palm, which is a company that doesn't ex- really exist anymore that, <laughs> that didn't open up its doors and let people write software into it. So right. I think it would be fun to help them with that kind of stuff. And just as a driver, it would be a lot of fun. For me to be able to geek out on this kind of stuff and have it in my car, that would be the best. Oh God! And you know what I want right now is to have the Night Rider music come on to play us out. <laughs> <laughs> if you made it this far, thanks for sticking with us all the way. This one's all through. If you'd like to join us on a future show, or if you have a question you'd like us to noodle on, let us know. You can find us on Twitter at DS Storytime, or join us on Slack at slack.keen.io. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com. And check out their library while you're there. It's full of talks, podcasts, and articles designed to help you take your developer product to market.